You're listening to Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. Get the Crush blogs, podcasts, and performance links at crushperformance.com. In sports, there's a fine line between pushing the limits of performance and managing the risk of injury. It's a balancing act and one that requires short-term adjustments and a long-term plan. It's almost like a dance, moving smoothly between the rhythms of training and competition and recovery and regeneration. Every sport has its unique demands and each athlete has their own personal and unique, what I call, performance range that they have to understand and operate within. The performance range is a combination of an athlete's state of readiness, their state of preparedness, and their ability to recover to the stresses of competition, training, and everything that goes along with competing in sport. It's critical that the athlete, the coach, and everyone on the performance team understands an athlete's performance range when it comes to training, competition, and recovering keeping in mind that you have some influence on your range. Here's an example. A few years back, I was working with a couple of elite developing U16 baseball players, and they were very evenly matched in age and in their training experience, as well as their competition levels. However, one player played and trained year-round, and the other played the season, but also ran cross-country and played basketball in the off-season. Now, here's a question for you. In your mind, which athlete here do you think has an advantage? The year-round baseball player or the multi-sport athlete? Which player would you say might have an advantage over the other? And by the way, the advantages are not only alarmingly apparent, they're vast, giving one of these players massive advantages in multiple areas of performance and development. Which one would you think has an advantage. The player that plays and trains one sport, baseball, all year round, or the player that competes during the season and plays basketball and runs cross country in the off season. Well, if you chose the baseball player who ran cross country and played basketball, you would be so right. And in every single aspect of athlete and player performance. Now, to be clear, the player who just focused on baseball year-round had a slight advantage on the baseball field at this point in time. However, there was absolutely no comparison in the areas of cardiovascular fitness, movement skills, and ultimately, coachability. The multi-sport player could simply do things the other player couldn't. And that cardio base, let me tell you, he developed such a great cardio base running cross country and playing basketball. If there was a secret weapon in all of this, that would be it. That cardiovascular fitness he developed playing basketball and running cross country. Well, the quality and quantity of training this athlete could handle was leaps and bounds greater than the other player. If I were to simply show you their training programs, you might not even be able to tell that they were both training for the game of baseball. 
For the baseball-only player, we had to spend a very large amount of time increasing his performance range, getting him physically ready to handle the training that needed to happen in order to advance him in his sport, where the basketball cross-country player was busting out advanced training aimed at improving his sport performance, and he was recovering so efficiently, it wasn't even fair. It was night and day. And this is where athlete management, load management, periodization, long-term development, whatever you want to call it, becomes a critical piece in the sporting landscape. Unfortunately, in the big picture of sport, either we're collectively lacking in our understanding of this concept or we're choosing to ignore it. Here's the thing. If I were to take a poll on which athlete you all felt had an advantage over the other, I would guess, and I am guessing here, but I'm also confident that the majority of everyone out there picked the cross-country basketball player as having an advantage. And you'd be 100% correct. Even though that player might not be as capable in the game of baseball at this time, the advantages, short-term and long-term, are countless. And if that advantage is handled correctly, it has a compound effect for the rest of that player's career. It literally puts that athlete on a different developmental trajectory based on his ability to recover from the stresses of competition, of training, and of all the other things that life throws at them. And that's important. That continues over time. It can actually gain speed if it's handled properly. It's like building momentum. And when it's managed properly, well, this is when you truly find out how far an athlete can actually go. That aerobic base doesn't mean that a player is going to be able to throw strikes or turn double plays or hit a curveball, but that player will be more coachable. And it absolutely means he'll handle all of the training required much better than his baseball only counterpart. Recovery is largely influenced by cardiovascular fitness and the aerobic and anaerobic energy systems that influence how an athlete operates right down to the cellular level. It is fundamental. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to run a marathon, but you need a solid aerobic base so you can build towards sport performance in your sport. I mean, we closely manage the volume and intensity of the running that our marathoners, our ultra marathoners, and even our Ironmen do. The running volume is balanced with all the other training they're doing, the strength work, the power work, the flexibility, whatever it might be. There is a point of diminishing return when it comes to volume and intensity, a point where training can actually become counterproductive even if it is sport-specific. This is why if you look closely at most sports, they actually take away more than they give back in terms of overall sport performance and development. I actually don't think there's a sport out there that completely prepares you for the sport. I don't think it exists. Think about it. And if that is the case, if all you do is play, you are drastically limiting your future development and your overall performance. This is why you now see organizations, teams, agencies, and even athletes investing huge amounts of money and resources in performance training and athlete development. I mean, just look at the Blue Jays' new training complex in Dunedin, Florida, what I feel might be one of the finest athlete and player development complexes in all of sport. It is a $110 million athlete and player development paradise, and I want it. <laughs> 
I could, I could train any athlete in any sport there. Oh, the technology, the equipment they have. It is actually a very, very well thought out facility. If you ever get a chance to go online and take the virtual tour, do it. It is incredible. I don't think there is another complex that advanced anywhere in sport. It is unbelievable. And they continue to push the boundaries. But at the root of this massive complex and the investment and the programs and the facilities is the performance team. The people that make the programs work, the athletic trainers and the medical staff, the nutritionists, mental training coaches, and the all important strength and conditioning coaches. And now you have what's called the athlete and player development specialists who are people who have a grasp on sports science and athlete and player development as a whole. They're not many of these people around, but they're like the Yodas of performance, kind of like the all seeing beings who connect the performance dots, dots from the past, dots in the present, and dots going into the future. All of the members of the performance team are working in collaboration to get the athletes ready to be players. They're getting them prepared to be coached by the coaches. That's what it's all about. Unfortunately, in the long-term development of an athlete through youth into their mid-teen years, into entering the high-performance pathway, whether it's college, national teams, or professional sport, that's missing. And Honestly, that's where the damage is being done in youth sport, where we don't typically adhere to the rules of athlete management. And it's the biggest crime I think we're facing in all of sport. We need to get our heads around protecting our youth because listen, younger players need more rest. Unfortunately, in the industrialized age of youth sport, again, youth sport is predicted to generate over $20 billion in revenue this year in North America alone, more than any of the professional sports. But when these organizations started academies and travel teams and showcases and year-round sport so they could collect money to pay their bills, we were in trouble. You've heard me talk about that before. I'm not saying it's the end of the sporting world, but I am saying if you're not aware of it, you are at risk of all the dangers that go along with this new sporting landscape we're in. There are ways around it. And also there are organizations out there, youth development organizations, I should say, that are really trying to do things right. They understand the changes that have happened in the ebb and flow of athlete development, especially through youth. And they are now compensating and building great programs to adjust for these changes. Changes like being involved in one single sport, like our young baseball player we spoke of before. That baseball player now gets into one of these good organizations where they understand that just doing baseball year round is an absolute high risk road to go down. Well, they're not doing that. They're taking those players who are committed to the game away from baseball and they're doing other activities to get them ready for the game again they're actually adhering to the in-season off-season ebb and flow that i love so much in sport but when you get a multi-discipline sport performance team backing you up we're talking about straight up flat out athlete and player management i love this stuff i just wish more people understood it or had access to it 
for our youth and developing athletes. I wish that the athletes, the coaches, and most certainly the parents had a better understanding of this. And for our high performance and pro athletes, I wish there was more thought put into where an athlete is coming from, a better analysis of where they're at right now with meaningful planning for where they need to go step by step until they're performing at their very best so you can look at how to improve even more. I wish that scouts, college recruiters, agents, and GMs would understand this more and connect all of these dots. Sport would be a much better place if they did. That's what I would wish for all of you out there. And frankly, it's not that difficult if you know what to do. The planning has to start early. We know beyond a doubt that the type of training and competition that happens prior to the mid-teen years and puberty directly impacts an athlete's odds of reaching their potential in sport. For example, like our U16 baseball players, the player with the established cardiovascular fitness may not have been a better U16 baseball player at that time, but his resilience and ability to recover and respond to training allowed him not only to catch up to the other baseball player, but absolutely eclipse him at the higher levels of the game. And while the cardiovascular part was a major contributor in my eyes, you simply can't ignore the data. Early specialization in any sport, baseball, golf, tennis, swimming, whatever, is a dangerous game to play if you have an athlete with a dream of chasing down a career in elite sport. When it comes to specialization and early specialization in sport, we know that 94.7% of all NCAA athletes were multi-sport athletes growing up, 45% until the age of 16. Regardless of your sport, there is something very valuable in playing multiple sports through those critical developmental years. And that data, by the way, is from the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine in a study titled Analysis of Sports Specialization in the NCAA. And there's so much other data out there. I mean, just look at the recent drafts in any major sport. The NFL, for example, the majority of first round picks were multi-sport athletes. There might only be one or two players in any given year who specialized in football going in the first round. Intense training, intense competition, and a focus on one sport appears to be a very dangerous game to play. Just look at the data. So what do you do if you are specializing early? Well, it's not as bad as it might sound as long as you understand the basic fundamentals. It is critical to get with an athlete development and performance expert so you can build a program around your athlete that compensates for the lack of playing other sports and expands that performance range we talked about, reducing the risk of injury, making them more durable, and ultimately more coachable, compensating for a lack of experience you would get from other sports. That needs to happen inside of the training program if you're specialized, so you can raise their ceiling of potential, not only short-term, not only short-term play right now immediately, but the long game. Uh, when a 16-year-old is 23 or when a 12-year-old is 18. These are the kind of thoughts that need to enter your mind when you're planning for your athlete. And even if they're just playing for fun, these principles remain critical. And it all revolves around athlete and player management and work recovery ratios. What does that look like? Well, let's have a look. So athlete and player management or load management or periodization as we call it in the biz, 
all refer to balancing the variables of an athlete's workload. Whatever you want to call it, it goes way back. The Greeks were doing it way back when, and it's well documented. They had a training system that worked on a four-day cycle, with each day consisting of a different activity. It goes back to 2022 AD. Come on, if we haven't figured it out by now, I don't know what's going to happen moving forward. But we have made some progress. For our athletes, we look at a few factors when we're planning our programs. First, we consider sport demands. What does it consist of? Is it harmful? If we look at football, for example, you have the contact and the head injuries. In hockey, you've got the intensity and the speed and the contact and the boards. In soccer, you have volume. In basketball, well, you have all of it. Baseball, well, baseball is a special one. First, the brutal schedule. 162 games in 186 days. It is the most demanding schedule in all of sport. Maybe not the most physically demanding sport in all of sport, but listen to me carefully. That throwing motion. For the middle infielders, yes. For the outfielders, hard, long throws, most certainly. For the catchers, who throw more than anybody on a baseball field. But the pitchers, listen, throwing at intensity, throwing with purpose, trying to hit a target off the mound, 60 feet, six inches, and on top of that, understanding the shoulder joint and the shoulder girdle. It is one of the most complex movements in all of sport. Left unchecked, it quickly becomes the most dangerous. You might consider tennis here. You might look at quarterbacks in football, but the volume isn't there and the intensity isn't constantly there. And with today's emphasis on velocity, who baseball has a special dangerous variable that we have to consider when we're working with these athletes. I'll say it again, left unchecked, the throwing motion in baseball is one of the most dangerous movements in all of sport for potential injury. And then you have the event-driven athletes, the golf players, the tennis players, the Olympic and national team athletes who are training and peaking for a particular event in the next month or in the next year. Event athletes are so fun to work with because you can actually set up training cycles to peak for performance. If you look at football, uh, especially in the NFL or even collegiate football, it is a great schedule. One game a week, practice is very designated. You can manage your training time. Hockey and basketball have their off days. Soccer has their off days. Baseball, well, it's crazy. 162 games in 186 days. But when you have off days to manage, you can influence performance and you can also really, I believe, reduce the risk of injury for an athlete. So when we're looking at all these variables, we look at things like intensity, volume, and then movement efficiencies, like how well do they throw? How much force are they applying? How clean is the movement? If you have somebody that has a herky-jerky movement, you know there's probably more damage being done per throw or per movement than a player who's smooth and effortless. This goes for our running athletes as well. I mean, we've had running athletes in every sport where we actually limit the amount they run in training because they're not good runners. Too much impact forces, too much oscillation or movement of their center of mass causing stress on the joints. So we'll use other things like non-impact 
swimming, rowers, bike work, just to give them a break. But at some point, if you're a running, moving athlete, you have to interact for the ground. So there's another very important variable that I don't think gets a lot of consideration and zero to no consideration at the youth levels, movement efficiency. And then of course, you also have to consider age and growth. It is one of the most critical factors in how we manage our athletes. And remember this again, youth athletes, young athletes, rookie pro athletes need more rest than older veteran athletes who've had time to become accustomed to the demands of their sport. Keep this in mind, younger athletes need more rest. But when you get into the big picture ebb and flow of a competitive annual calendar, you have an in-season, you have a pre-season, you have a post-season if you're in the playoffs, and then you have an off-season. And trust me, for me, the off-season is where we really make hay. That's when the sun is shining. Unfortunately, we're packing so much into an athlete's annual calendar we're losing critical off-season. <laughs> Again, I joke about this when I speak, but if there was ever a position called king of sport, I would run for it. I'm not saying I would win the election, but as king of sport, I would mandate time away from sport until athletes are done growing, mature enough, emotionally and mentally stable enough to attack a high-performance pathway in sport. This is something that we're just not doing well right now. And I think it's one of the major contributors to the injury rates we're seeing at every single level of sport. Athlete management. It's about that work recovery cycle and there are so many variables here. There is travel, competitive schedules, the fitness level of an athlete coming into a season or a competitive phase of training. And all of those things we just talked about. In sport, there's this special little model that I just love. I think it sums up sport performance in a beautiful, concise little nutshell. And I show it to every athlete I work with, every organization, every team, and every coach, because it is sport performance. Now, I've talked to physiotherapists and medical experts who feel that the model is too simple, but that's not the point. We can make sport and athlete development as complicated as you want it. And trust me, it is a hardcore science. But if we're really, truly going to be effective, breaking it down and simplicity is going to be the best path to the promised land here. Just like everywhere else in life, in business, in academics, when we're engineering and trying to solve problems, Occam's razor. Sometimes the simplest answer is the best answer. And I'm telling you, the super compensation model represents sport performance for me and everybody had better understand it. And there's so much value in this simple little model. Basically what it says, over a designated period of time, six hours, 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, whatever your time frame might be. Your athlete shows up to a training session or a competition and they have a certain level of readiness, a certain fitness level, a certain emotional and mental readiness level. As soon as you start your work that day, whether it's the warm up for a competition or whether it's your training session, what happens to your fitness level? It starts to drop and depending on the intensity of the work 
the volume of the work, the duration of the work that will determine how far your fitness level drops that day. But here's the kicker. The work that you do that day actually elicits a change in the body. That's why the work you do had better be planned and it had better be specific because as your body recovers, hopefully with enough rest and the proper amount of nutrition, sleep, and all the components that help you return to your fitness level, your body will adapt because of the training. This is ultimately called the supercompensation or the compensation period, the acclimation period, or the adaptation period, where the body changes and advances because of the training you did during your work period. Now, here's the thing. We want to train again inside of that adaptation. If we work too hard or work too often or don't recover enough, we get a negative developmental curve, and that's where decreases in performance and injuries start to happen. If we manage our athletes properly, we can maintain a certain area of performance, but we're always looking to improve something. And that's where these types of models and these types of management strategies come into play. Now, the thing you need to understand coming out of this is what kind of stress causes what kind of fatigue and how long does it take to recover from that fatigue, because listen to me, different types of training stimulus require different times to full recovery. For example, training that taxes the nervous system, speed, power, or intense, intense strength training takes much longer to recover from than say endurance work or muscular endurance work in the weight room or flexibility work. Anything that induces serious neuro fatigue needs more time to recover. For example, if we asked you to go out for a long, slow run, it might take you 8 to 12 hours to recover, depending on your cardiovascular fitness, depending on your running style, or depending on how accustomed you were to the course or the type of exercise we have you do. If you've never ridden a bike, for example, and we put you on a bike, you would probably fatigue or require more recovery than somebody who's accustomed to a bike. Kind of makes sense, right? However, if we had you come to the track and do intensive aerobic training, kind of like intervals or fartlek training, where we're getting you 75% plus of your maximum heart rate, it's going to take 40 to 60 hours to recover. For sprints or short sets in the weight room, we're looking at 30 to 40 hours to recover. Again, depending on your initial fitness levels and your familiarity with the exercises we're doing, but Typically, 30 to 40 hours. Now, if we get into intense strength training or into a wicked competitive setting, we could be looking at massive fatigue inside of the work session where we might need 48 to 72 hours to recover. You get the idea. Depending on the type of work that we're doing, the intensity of the work, the time that we're actually working, you can have drastic changes in the amount of time the body needs to fully recover. And that is something that is critically important for athlete performance and health and wellness. And once you understand all this, you can really start to play with it for your athlete's advantage. When I first started working with some of our pro athletes, regardless of their sport, hockey, football, soccer, basketball, certainly the baseball guys, a lot of them would work out after the competition simply because that's the way it was done. Well, I never liked that model. And so we quickly looked for ways to get the exercise or training that we needed to do on a particular day done before competition. 
Keep in mind, most of the games were played at night. When we had a day game or afternoon game, it was another variable we could play with in the training schedule, but for the most part, night games. So for these night games, I would have the athletes train earlier in the day, depending on what the training session was and where we were at. If we were at home, it would influence when I would ask guys to come in as opposed to being on the road. At home, a lot of the players had family and friends around, and we also had unlimited access to our facilities, so we didn't have any restrictions as to when we could get really quality work done. On the road, we might have limited access to a facility, or we might be traveling and the guys might not be fully recovered in order to train. So I would change according to where we were at and when the games were being played. And then I also had to consider what the training was for that day. Was it agility training? Was it strength maintenance? Or was it strength building? Was it range of motion flexibility? Was it a recovery day? Was it a cardio day? Was it a speed power day? Every one of these days needed strategic recovery plans. So when we started working out before the games, we would use these little microcycles to not just get our training in for long-term performance, we would do strategic training to make sure they're at a heightened level of readiness at game time. So much fun. Can you imagine if we used this mentality through an athlete's career, especially through those critical ages where an athlete is so influenced by training, but also when they have so much else going on in their lives. Maybe it's another sport. Maybe they're going to school. Most kids are. Either they're going to school at a school or they're learning online at home. Either way, that's a stress you have to consider. They have friends. They're doing extracurricular activities. Maybe it's another sport. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's drama. Maybe it's science. Maybe they have a girlfriend. They might have a job. All of the things that are pulling at our younger athletes. Yet, when we go out into the world of sport. I'm seeing young athletes as young as 12 and 13 years of age actually engaged in their sport more than I'd ever have our pro guys engaged in their sport. And trust me, our pro guys, all they do is compete, train, eat, and sleep. That's their job. And yet we have these younger athletes who are more susceptible to injuries, who are not fully ready for the stresses of full-on sport loads, and they're doing more work than our pro guys. We have really, really lost our way. Age is a tremendous factor here, especially through those developmental ages where we're seeing rapid long bone growth. Our athletes are more susceptible to injury then than at any other time in their growth and development. So if you're a coach or a parent or an athlete who works with or is experiencing long bone growth or rapid long bone growth, proceed with extreme caution. Growth rate is one of the most important factors for developing youth athletes. The bottom line is you have to manage yourself and you have to find that balance between training, competing, and recovering. And then on top of all that, like we mentioned, you need to add in life, the relationships, the work, the school, anything that takes time and effort. You need to consider that in your programming. And then you have to know your tolerance for it all. 
That's why in our programs, the Crush Advantage program uh, that we've started here in the Alberta Edmonton region, we go to great lengths to really map out these plans for our athletes. And we're having uncanny, tremendous success. You know, I often say, it's not so much that we overwork. The body can withstand tremendous amounts of work. Let's get that clear. It's not so much that we overwork as much as we under recover, probably because we don't understand the importance of the recovery process or the toll training and competition takes on the human body. And this is why rest and recovery and sleep are our top program priorities in every program we write. Everything in an athlete's schedule is built around the quality and quantity of rest and recovery, not the other way around, where we're trying to cram in more work and sacrificing recovery. In fact, some of our athletes say enter our programs they get bored out of their minds. They get antsy because they're not as busy as they typically have been over their lives. And a few cool things happen here. One, we start to see an incredible improvement in the quality of work being done in the training sessions. They're simply recovered. They're coming in at a higher level of readiness. That actually accelerates development and performance short term but also raises the ceiling of potential way down the road. For a 16-year-old, that work and that change might alter their ceiling of potential when they're 21, 22, and 23. Not only that, the reported feelings of self-wellness or self-efficacy, they feel better, their moods are better, they're sleeping better, they are healthier and happier. And that being said, we do notice a drop in the incidence and the frequency and the number of injuries our athletes are experiencing. And if they are injury prone, within four to six weeks, we see a massive turnaround in their physical health and wellness, which is probably for me, one of the most important factors. And then finally, yes, they're getting bored. They feel nervous. It's that keeping up with the Jones attitude. Hey, those guys are doing all this. I'm sitting around doing nothing. I'm going, yes, just watch and trust the process. And in the meantime, take up photography or start playing a musical instrument or start juggling. Do something to fill your downtime. Something not stressful, something enjoyable, something that might even add your development and your performance as an athlete and a player. These are the cool things that happen when you're programming your athlete properly. Do we know how far your athlete can go or how far you can go as an athlete? Absolutely not. But I am telling you, we'll find out if you plan properly. No matter what sport you play, no matter what level you play at, Athlete and player management strategies are a critical part of reducing the risk of injury and maximizing in-game performance short-term and in the long game of athlete and player development. So as you get set for your next training session, practice or competition, take a self-inventory and evaluate your level of recovery because recovery is king when you're creating coachable players. I'm Jeff Kershaw. The Crush Podcast is recorded right here in the Crush Studios. Our distribution partner is Radio Influence Digital Media. Website and educational material is produced and directed by Debbie Kershell, Miss Crusher. Theme music, graphics, and video design by Noah Olexen at Nolexen Visual and Sound. 
For more information, go to jeffcrishell.com. And if you coach baseball, check out my very first online course, Creating Coachable Players. Key strategies for player performance and injury prevention in baseball. It's all about helping you help your players. And for all the parents out there, stay tuned for our Creating Coachable Players Parent Edition, where we share the strategies of athlete management and player development with you so you can make intelligent decisions and guide your athlete through the sporting landscape. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance.